Amen. As you're following along at home, I invite you to join me in the scriptures this morning. If you would, turn in your Bibles. We're going to be looking in Luke chapter 23. I just want to say thank you to Dustin and the crew for leading us in worship this morning. That was, that was absolutely fantastic. I, I'm saddened that it's more or less, it, it's, just, it's just me here worshiping the Lord, and I miss all of you at home there, uh, wherever you are. I just want you to know how much uh, you all mean to me and how sad it is that we don't get to see each other here on Good Friday or Easter, Easter Sunday. I'm reminded of a joke I heard many, many years ago. Uh, there was a fellow who was uh, visiting uh, some, some friends of his, and they had had another friend over, a lady, and uh, he introduced himself to her, and, and uh, he said, good afternoon, my name is John, I'm, and they were having this, uh, this dinner party, this, this uh, coffee uh, sort of afternoon tea get together. And you say, Good afternoon, my name is John. And she smiled and she said, My name is Sue. And, and they got to visiting for just a moment. And she said to him, You know, you remind me of my third husband. I, I think you're just, you just look exactly like him. And he said to her, Mama, how many times have you been married? And she smiled and she said, Twice. And that's how I feel about all of you. <laughs> I can't see you this morning, and um, I just want you to know that uh, the church gathered, there is no uh, greater picture of heaven on this earth than the picture of brothers and sisters, the image of us gathering together to worship the Lord. And so I just want you to know how much I miss you and how in your, in your absence you've just become more and more dear to me. Uh, we're looking this morning uh, in the scriptures, we recognize that Jesus, on this day, 2,000 years ago, went to the cross on our behalf. And we're considering this particular text here in uh, Luke chapter 23. It is the last dialogue that Jesus engages in. As he's suffering on the cross, he will pray uh, you know, to the Father. There's a series of statements that he makes while he's on the cross. These are tortured statements made under extreme uh, agony, under pain. But this is the last dialogue that he has before he goes to the cross. And as we look at this text this morning and reflect upon Christ going to the cross on our behalf as our substitute to take away our sins... It's important that as we consider the event of the crucifixion, that we don't cry for the wrong reasons, but that we are broken for exactly the reasons that Jesus went to the cross. I just invite you to read along with me Luke chapter 23. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 26 to 30, 31. The scriptures read, as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. And they laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the womb that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. 
For, here's his explanation. If they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Before we uh, begin to unpack these scriptures, let's just bow for a moment and pray and ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate the text before us. Father in heaven, we just say thank you for this word. Thank you for Luke recording for us these events. And as we reflect here on this last dialogue of Christ, before he is to be pinned to the cross, we pray, Father, that as we reflect on it, your spirit would convict us that we are indeed grieved for the right reasons, that we are indeed weeping the way we ought to weep. And our prayer this morning, Lord, is that as we gather together on this somber day, this day of reflection upon the judgment and the wrath which you poured out on your son, that we would be moved by your spirit through your word to entrust our lives to this man who died on our behalf. We pray you do that through the word, by the power of the spirit, in the hope of the gospel. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We are accustomed to tragedy and to grieving. Every evening's news brings before us the horrible sights of tremendous and senseless tragedies. On one particular, particular evening's broadcast, you might um, be watching the news and you'll encounter an earthquake that has happened in some part of the world and the footage will bring before your eyes this image of uh, loved ones pawing furiously at the dirt, screaming and wailing and crying because they have a child or they have a wife or they have a sibling, a relative that is buried in the rubble. And so you will see this on the news and you will see these people just digging against concrete and steel and brick and the rubble of a building that has fallen down. You know in that moment that their loved one is almost certainly crushed beneath the rubble and you see them on the TV there hoping against hope and crying and in that moment you feel the weight of it and you're moved to tears as well. The very next evening you're watching the very same news broadcast and you'll encounter a woman in some remote some remote, uh, uh, some remote jungle in Africa, and uh, her husband and her sons have been murdered by some warring tribe. And the news image that evening b- brings you the picture of this this dear woman kneeling there in the dirt, holding the head of her husband in her lap as it rolls lifelessly from side to side. And you see that, and you're grieved by that, and you begin to cry. You cry for a number of reasons. You cry because. It ought not to have happened. It's an injustice. It shouldn't be this way. And so you see that and you're moved to tears. Or or perhaps uh, you have a shared experience. You you have some moment of tragedy in your own life in which uh, you can relate to this person you're seeing on the TV. Although the circumstances are slightly different, you also have lost someone. And you're grieving the same way that this person is grieving. And as you encounter this uh, experience on the TV, it moves you to tears as it reminds you and calls before your memory's eye that time in which you also experienced grief and tragedy. And frankly, some of us, we just cry just because it's sad. It's just sad. You're crying for them. You're crying for what you see on the TV. 
But let me ask you this question this morning. Are you crying for yourself? Of course not. You say, cry for myself? Why would I cry for myself? Uh, I'm, this isn't happening to me. This is happening to these people on the TV. I'm, I'm observing this, and I'm, I'm weeping for, for them. Why would I cry for myself? You're crying for them, but you don't cry for yourself because you're in your nice, safe, suburban home. The coffee is on. You're enjoying it. Perhaps you've just finished a nice meal with your family. You can hear the sounds of children playing outside. And as you observe this event, it moves you to tears. You're crying for what you see on the TV. But of course, you're not crying for yourself. Jesus says to you and to me this morning, as we look at the events of the crucifixion, as we are gazing upon the cross, whatever emotions we might feel, Christ is saying to you and to me, make sure you're not crying for him, but make sure you're crying for yourself. Look with me, Luke chapter 23. In verse 26, they're leading him away. This first verse tells us the exact moment of what is happening. Simon of Cyrene has been tapped. He's been sort of... uh, Shanghai by a Roman guard into carrying Christ's cross for him. This tells you, no matter where we're at in the context of the crucifixion, you know at this point, Jesus is so weakened, he is so beaten, so bruised, so bloodied, that for him to carry this cross, the cross member of the, of the beam that is to be the instrument upon which he is to be crucified, for him to carry that, he is so weakened that he's stumbling along, dragging this thing. The Roman guards see this and they know, man, this is going to take all day at the rate that this guy is going. So they grab Simon. They pull him out of the crowd. This is a nobody from nowhere. He doesn't know anything about Jesus. He's from, as it says, Cyrene, which is a country in Africa, uh, modern-day Libya. He has come undoubtedly to worship there in Jerusalem for Passover, and they just grab this guy who has no knowledge of anything, isn't a part of the band of Christ, isn't one of his followers, and they say, you are going to carry this guy's cross. And so this sad and unfortunate band is making their way through the streets of Jerusalem on their way to Golgotha where Christ is to be crucified. And Luke tells us something interesting. Verse 27, there followed after him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. They're crying for Jesus. Now, the Jerusalem culture, the the Hebrew culture of the first century is not like Canadian culture. We're very polite. Uh, We have our, our roots in the British tradition of the stiff upper lip. We're not quite as stoic, uh, perhaps, as the British, but we're not overtly expressive when it comes to our emotions. This is not the case of Jews in the first century. 
They would weep. They would cry at funerals. They would make a great show of it. And the greater show of weeping and crying that you made, the more honor you paid to the one who was dead, whatever funeral you were attending. It was so important to honor these individuals that crying and whipping yourself up into a frenzy was just what they did. It was their culture. I mean, I'm thinking of... uh, of uh, if, if you or I were to be in that situation, you know, we're not method actors from Hollywood, so how would we, uh, how would we cry? If we were to have a, a Jewish woman from the first century here with us today, and we were to say, you know, we appreciate this activity that you're engaging in, weeping at funerals, tell us how we can also uh, participate. She might say, you know, if you have a hard time whipping up some tears, you know, use an onion or something like that, just cut an onion, do something to try to get the tears flowing. And of course, in this particular culture, they would be so studied at it, so proficient, that uh, they probably had backup plans. What if, you don't have a, what if you don't have an onion? Well, think of something that makes you sad. Well, what if there's nothing really that you can think of that makes you sad? And of course, at some point in time, some young handmaiden would chime in and say, you know, onions aren't the only uh, thing that can make you cry. There's other fruit, there's other vegetables you're thinking to yourself, really? Say, yeah, just take a coconut and throw it at you as hard as you can. And when it hits you, you'll, you'll cry. I have no idea if that's funny or not. I don't have a church here to laugh. I hope you're laughing at home. That was intended to be a joke. Insert a little levity into the text this morning. The point is, they are crying. They're crying for Jesus, but we're not entirely sure just how sincere these tears really are. They see him marching down the street they probably have some understanding that he is an innocent man, that this was a sham trial, a kangaroo court, and now here it is, he is being crucified, he is being executed after having been brutally and savagely tortured. And they see that, and they're weeping for it. Perhaps it's a form of sentimentality in which they're recognizing this shouldn't be happening this way, this is wrong, Perhaps maybe a few of them in the crowd know him or have most likely a loved one that he has healed in some way. They, they know something of this man and they're crying. And Jesus says to them, you better be crying for the right reasons. The next thing he says, verse 26, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, weep for yourselves and for your children. Now, in this moment, Jesus Christ is putting boundaries around their emotion. He isn't necessarily rebuking them, saying, don't weep. It isn't that he's saying what is happening to me is not a tragedy, but he is looking at their emotions. He is looking at their tears, and he is seeking not to discourage those tears, but to make sure that those tears are elevated to the place where they need to be, the proper place where they ought to be crying. Not some mere sentimentality of, oh, here's a bad thing happening. We should be sad for this. No, there is something very profound happening 
at the foot of the cross that is not so much focused on Christ. He is at the center of it, but the reason he is there at the center of all of it is not because of anything he has done. It is because of you and me. And if we are weeping because Jesus was some sort of a good teacher, some sort of a moral philosopher, and what happened to him was a tragedy, and we look at it and we cry for it in the same way we might cry for the murder, the assassination of JFK, What Christ wants us to know is that, yes, this is sad, but make sure your tears are elevated to the proper place. You're not weeping properly if you're not weeping for yourself as you behold the cross. That's what Christ is saying. He says, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. Our Lord was right to put their emotions within their proper bounds, to give focus and to actually give spiritual and eternal significance to their weeping. Their grief in this particular passage is more of a worldly kind. It's more of a worldly kind. These feelings that they have are most likely fleeting and weightless. There's no gravity to it. Their tears of emotion are there to be cried and they're speedily wiped away and forgotten. We don't know that any of these women ever became converts of Christ. There's no record in the upper room. There's no mention in the book of Acts as the church is beginning to take off. No one in any of those passages, in any of those other accounts, ever points to these daughters of Jerusalem here who are weeping for Jesus. And ever, No one ever says one of these people became a follower of Christ. Now, surely some of them probably did. But as a whole, as a group of women following after Christ, weeping for him, they are not moved, as far as the text tells us here in the Gospel of Luke, they are not moved to a moment of conversion where they're giving their lives to Christ. That's not what is happening here. And we can be mistaken. Maybe some of them did become Christians. But we don't really know that for sure. And so our Lord, in a moment of compassion, even as he is being crucified, saying to them, "Ah, you better be crying for the right reasons. Your tears better be for a purpose that can actually lead to salvation. He is, even in this moment, pressing their heart. These tears are fleeting They're here today and gone tomorrow. They may have forgotten by tomorrow why it was that they were weeping today. And another reason why it's good that our Lord challenged these tears is because such emotions can be deceptive. These are fleeting tears, fleeting emotions, and we are prone to say of ourselves, we're good people because we're crying over sad things. Because I'm affected in a particular way, because I have a particular emotion regarding a particular circumstance because I see something on the evening news and it makes me sad, well, then, you know, I'm a good person. Clearly, I care about these people. Clearly, I love these individuals that I see suffering these indignities and these atrocities from the comfort of my couch at home in my living room. We're prone to be deceived into thinking more of our own righteousness by emotions that lend themselves to some sort of an affection for humanity. Christ is saying, don't cry for that. Don't cry for that. 
really as we reflect on this particular text here in Luke chapter 23. When Jesus says, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves, I'm, I'm really reminded, I think, of a child who is denied something simple like an ice cream cone. We've all seen it. You have a child, I'm sure. At one point in time, you've been a mom or a dad, and you've been walking along, and your child or your, your son or your daughter has said, can I, can I have an ice cream cone? Or you, he sees some trinket in a shop window. Can I, Dad, can I have that? And of course, you say no. You know better. He doesn't need it. You know, there are any number of reasons for why you say no. You say no, and the child throws themselves down on the ground and is weeping. And if you weren't a mature, grown adult, you'd think that there was some sort of deep long, longing and spiritual connection between this child and that, that ice cream cone or that toy or that trinket. Like, wow, I've really broken this poor kid because I've said no to the toy or the trinket or the ice cream cone. And, and then, of course, your wife comes along and pulls a peppermint out of her purse and says, here, honey, have that. And immediately the tears are gone. It's like, ooh, look at this, peppermint. Just in the same way that the kid has no deep longing for whatever it is he was denied and is easily distracted and drawn away by some other sweet, some other substitute. Christ is challenging these women. You're looking at the Messiah. You're looking at the Savior. And you're crying. But you'll easily be drawn away tomorrow by the next idol that comes into your life. You just happen to, in this moment, be crying over the true God, the Son of God, Jesus, the Messiah, who has, in fact, come to die for your sins. You have, in this moment, by pure happenstance, landed upon something that is truly worthy of weeping for, but you're weeping for the wrong reasons because you're not broken on the inside over your sin. You don't understand the significance of what Christ is actually doing doing for you. And my fear is that all over the world, people are celebrating here on Easter Friday, Good Friday, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ as the prelude to Resurrection Sunday. They're grieving, but they have never been broken by these events for the right reasons. And Jesus is going to say, if you really want to cry, here's something to cry about. He goes on. He says, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and weep for your children. Verse 29, for behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. If you have your Bibles open there, I just invite you to flip back a couple of chapters. Go back with me to Luke chapter uh, 19. Oh, I missed it there. Luke chapter 19. And in verses 41 and following, this is Palm Sunday. Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. And it says, when he drew near the city and he saw the city, he wept over it. Verse 42 saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. These these people don't understand what Jesus is really all about. He says he would desire for them to know the things that actually make for peace. But he says, now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you. And they will surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. He's talking about the city of Jerusalem within the city walls. He is saying a day is coming in which your enemies are going to approach you. 
and it's going to be a disaster. And it's going to be such a catastrophic disaster. It's going to impact not only you, but your children. And the reason he gives, he says, they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. The Lord is saying, I'm here visiting you and oh, how I wish that you knew for the things that would actually make for peace. But because you're insisting on war, war against God in your sin and in your rebellion, war will come to you and it will be catastrophic. You know that he just has to have that idea in his mind when he makes this statement. Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves. He says, there's a day coming in which women will say, blessed are those who don't have children. Blessed are those who never nursed. Blessed are those who are without child. They'll say, you are lucky. And this automatically, this is an upside down. This is a reversal. This is flipping reality on its head because you want children. Every, every wife wants a child. Every, everybody wants to be a mom. There's an instinctive desire. And of course, when you have a husband and a wife and they are not able to conceive and have children, there is a moment of sadness. I can bear witness to this. My wife and I for years tried to have children and never were able to conceive naturally. And, and so the longing is there. Naturally, you want to have a child. You want someone that you can love, that you can raise and Jesus is saying, Don't, there's a day coming in which you will, looking at your circumstances, say, man, I really wish I didn't have kids right now. And what he's really getting at is that when you understand the destruction that is coming, you recognize that you're going to watch this disaster, this catastrophe coming upon your own children. And your heart will be broken, broken for yourself, but even more broken because you're watching this disaster coming upon your children. Love becomes a curse as you watch the ones you love suffer. Jesus is saying, make sure you're crying for the right reasons. Don't just be crying for Christ Make sure you're crying because you're bent on a path of destruction that will compel you to a moment in time in which you will wish you didn't even have children. He goes even a step further. He says in verse 30, then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills cover us. Our Lord means for us this morning as we're considering this dialogue not merely to reflect upon it and to have in view the historical events of Jerusalem in which Rome sacked Jerusalem around 70 AD, approximately 40 years after the crucifixion. We read that passage and we understand that when Jerusalem was destroyed, when the stones were torn down, when the temple was demolished, that it was indeed a time of incredible heartache it was reported by various historians, Josephus, Tacitus, and others, that the women inside the city uh, were tempted and in some cases were even guilty of eating their own children so, 
so horrific was the starvation that took place. And so when Jesus makes this comment, weep for yourselves for there's a day coming in which you will wish you didn't have children, most likely he has in view the events of 70 AD. But this next phrase tells us that he has in view the whole scope and sweep of humanity. He makes the statement, then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. This is a clear reference to the dialogue of the hardened and rebellious in Revelation chapter 6 when the Lamb of God returns to this earth to begin executing judgment. The scriptures record for us that those who continued in their hardened sin against Christ began calling to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Jesus starts off with this nearer picture of destruction, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, but he has in view all destruction all the way to the end of time in which he comes back, not as a suffering servant, but as a roaring lion. He says, there's a day coming in which those who exist would wish that they didn't exist. And and so as horrific as it is to imagine being in a situation in which we would count ourselves lucky not to have children, Jesus says, oh, it can get far, far more worse than that. You're going to wish in a certain day in which the lamb returns that you were never born, that you were never alive. There is a moment coming, says the Lord, in which you would rather to not exist than to exist as this. Christ says, make sure you're crying for the right reasons. What are those right reasons? The reasons that Christ is calling these women to contemplate. The reasons that he is calling you and me to contemplate. And the reasons that our sin has separated us from a holy God. And as a just God, he must execute justice. Every one of us will have our debts paid one way or another. Every one of us have offended a holy God. And one way or another, every single one of us will have what we owed paid before the throne to his satisfaction. Not ours, not what we consider necessary or sufficient. Every one of us will have our debts paid from his accounting and paid to his satisfaction. And what Jesus is saying here is he has come to pay our debts if we would accept his payment. They're weeping, they're crying, they're emotional. Absolutely, we should be grieved and broken We should be saddened by the cross, but not saddened because of Jesus going victoriously to conquer the grave. Saddened because our sin required him to go. He finishes with this last expression. He says in verse 31, 
if they do these things, when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? This is a bit of an enigmatic statement. There's no real parallel anywhere else in the scriptures. There's no cross-reference that we can go to in which we try to understand this. So I'll give it my best shot. I think in a nutshell what Christ is saying is that he was the innocent one. He was the one upon which there was no stain of sin and no curse. That he was the only one born among men that really ought never to have died, having never sinned, having never done anything to deserve death or judgment. He is, as a branch compared to all the other branches of humanity, the living branch, the green twig, the green tree, whereas all the rest of us are dead in our sins and our trespasses. Of course, if you've ever been out cutting wood, you understand that when you go out to cut firewood, to burn it in your fireplace, you have to let it season for a time. You have to let it sit out in the sun and dry out. Freshly felled trees can be burned, but of course the fire has to be stoked. It has to get hot. Of course you can throw a green log into the fireplace and have it burn. It doesn't burn well, but it can be burned if you get the fire hot enough. Of course, it's much easier for the fire to burn when you have dry, dead logs that you're using as kindling, as fuel for the fire. And what Christ is saying is, here is the real tragedy. If this kind of judgment can befall a truly innocent person, if God would allow Christ who did not deserve death, who did not sin, who never did anything wrong, who was perfectly righteous and absolutely holy, to suffer what he suffered and to die the way he died. If God would allow the green tree that was Christ to perish in this way, what do you think God is going to do to the dry dead wood? This brings to my mind the passage from the Apostle Peter, writing in 1 Peter 4.17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? Weep, says Jesus, not for him. Weep and cry and be grieved by all those who have not fully, completely, and exclusively hoped in Christ and only in what he has done on the cross. Those are the ones which we rightly should be grieving for. We don't need to weep for Jesus. A lot of people see Jesus here approaching Golgotha, going up the hill of the skull to be crucified. And we see him here and we consider him to be at a moment of great, great weakness. It's as though the kingdom of heaven is being shattered and Satan appears to be winning. And many, many people look at this and that's what they see in that moment of darkness and the earthquake. But that's not correct. Jesus is dying, but he is crushing death in his dying. 
He is burying Satan. He is redeeming humanity. He is defeating all the powers of darkness and he is setting us free in this moment from the bondage and the enslavery of sin. You and me, he is rescuing us. In this moment, it looks like Jesus is at his weakest, but I'm telling you, he is winning. You say, Pastor, he has to have this guy, Simon of Cyrene, dragging his cross. Surely he's losing in this moment. He doesn't even possess the strength. Here at the approximate age of 30, 33 years of age, he doesn't even have the the power within him to carry his own cross to Golgotha. They got to drag in this guy, Simon of Cyrene, to do it for him. And you know what's interesting? Simon of Cyrene is being saved in this moment. So how do you know that? Over in Mark, don't flip there, just listen. Parallel passage over in the Gospel of Mark. says they compelled, this is Mark 15, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene. Interesting comment that Mark makes. Who was coming in from the country the father of Alexander and Rufus. And they compelled him to carry Christ's cross. Now this is accepted by all scholars to be sort of an inside comment amongst Christians in the first century who would be reading Mark's gospel. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian scholar, a Christian academic, or some liberal hack that doesn't believe in the truthfulness or the inerrancy of scripture. Every scholar agrees that the gospel of Mark, when it was written and produced and distributed amongst the various churches in the first century, when Mark makes this comment, Simon of Cyrene, who is the father of Alexander and Rufus, it is an inside sort of wink and a nod type of comment in which, hey, you know who this guy is, this Simon of Cyrene. You know him because, hey, you know his kids. You know Alexander. You know Rufus. The churches of the first century would only have known Alexander and Rufus if they were Christians worshiping in the church, worshiping Jesus Christ. And so although we don't have any statement anywhere in the New Testament that tells us that Simon of Cyrene placed his faith in Christ, there can be no doubt that his kids did. And we have every reason to suspect that if his kids did, if Alexander and Rufus became Christians and were known amongst the Christians of the church of the first century, Simon of Cyrene probably did as well. Simon of Cyrene, come in from Egypt, come in from Libya to celebrate Passover, carries the cross of the Passover lamb, not having seen or observed any of this man's ministry firsthand. The gospel that Simon heard from Jesus was this. You see Jesus going to his crucifixion. Don't cry for that. Cry for yourself if you have not hoped in Jesus. We look at him. We look at our Lord. We see him going to the cross. We see him going to Golgotha to be crucified And all too often we pity him. 
He who is even in this moment victoriously crushing Satan and setting Simon of Cyrene free. And not only Simon, but the thief on the cross who was crucified alongside him. He is in this moment ransoming his redeemed. He is in this moment defeating the enemy. We tend to look at him and because of the agony of the cross, we pity him. Jesus looks back at you and me from the cross and he says, this is the most tragic event in all of human history surpassed by none other than this for which you really should weep. The tragedy of your own rejection of Jesus when it was readily available to you and you said no and you kept yourself under debt to the vengeance and the wrath of a holy God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we are justified, we are set free by the blood of Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation, big word, means satisfaction of his divine demand for justice, his, his wrath which needed to be satisfied. It says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Friend, that's you that's me, that's all of us. The scriptures are clear. We've all fallen short. Good Friday is good. Christians call it good because in this moment, on this day, as the only innocent man was being brutally and savagely murdered, executed, dying a death he never deserved, this is good because for all who have fallen short of the glory of God, if we would put our hope in we can be forgiven of our sins. We can be set free from the bondage of sin. And we can be adopted into the family of God as sons and daughters. As we bring this time in the word to a close this morning, my prayer for you on this Good Friday, though we are experiencing the plague of coronavirus, and the world is not as it was just a few weeks ago, we are per- probably crying because we don't get to observe this Easter weekend like we've observed it in years past. Don't cry for that. There are greater things worthy of our tears. Don't even cry for Jesus dying on the cross. Cry for those who have never hoped in him. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we just say thank you for this word from the scriptures. Our prayer, Lord, is for those who are watching on the internet, for those who are listening in, and maybe even for those who are a part of our church, Lord. If there are any within the hearing of this prayer that have never surrendered their lives in faith and trust to your son and hoped only in what he has done for them on the cross and in nothing else. If there are any who have never truly been convicted by the Holy Spirit and felt the weight and the gravity of their sin and cried not because it was sad, but because of how they had sinned against you. Lord, in a a word, we just pray this morning, if there are any who have ever weeped for the wrong reasons, We pray that you would open their eyes to cry for the right reasons. 
that your spirit would bring them to salvation. God, we pray that your gospel would go forth to the ends of the earth and that your word would accomplish all for which you sent it. Do this in the powerful, reigning, sovereign name of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in the Lord's name. Amen.